after 400 silent years, God speaks. Hmm. We find silence uncomfortable, don't we? The silence is for us so that we don't miss it. So that we don't miss it. And the silence is followed by a significant step in God's redemptive plan. Like 400 silent years in Egypt, suffering in slavery, physical suffering. And then followed by the exodus to the promised land. The last word in the Old Testament is a bit discouraging. In Malachi 4, 6, it says, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Last word in the Old Testament, curse. Wow, what a place to end. But the first message in the New Testament, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, is blessed, blessed, blessed. And here, in Luke chapter 3, verse 6, God's salvation. So we go from curse to blessed and salvation. Come and see is an invitation to us today to come and to see. We want to look at the life of Christ and we want to pursue spiritual renewal. Through our focus on spiritual renewal, from Advent to Pentecost, we want to see Jesus. We want to see what he was doing 2,000 years ago, but we also want to see what he's doing in our midst today. He's still active. He's not sleeping. He's still involved. So this is an effort at recalibration, a fresh wind, fresh fire, a desire to get closer to Christ and to increase our intimate relationship with him. On the one hand, yes, God is the giver of all spiritual life. And on the other hand, humans, even those who are born again and part of God's family, from time to time drift into a kind of lifelessness, lethargy, backsliding, and indifference. And when you put those two together, God the giver of life, and man ever drifting toward lifelessness, what you get is the need for and hope for revival, of coming back to life, a fresh outpouring of God's life-giving spirit on his people. What does renewal from a state of dormancy or stagnation look like? Well, I have a few thoughts. A renewed love for God. An appreciation for God's holiness. We just sang this morning, holy, holy, holy. An appreciation of God's holiness. A passion for his word and for the church. A convicting awareness of both personal sin and corporate sin. A spirit of humility and a desire for repentance and growth in righteousness. Those would all be symptoms, if you will, of renewal. We want to invigorate and deepen our faith. We want to open our eyes to the truth in a fresh and new way. We want a deeper vision of Jesus as we come and see him and follow him. The passage that Joel read, and sorry, Joel, for all those difficult words there at the beginning. A lot of it, you've got to be Greek to read some of those. But John points the way to Jesus. He's the forerunner. And he demonstrates how Jesus is qualified to represent both humanity 
and the nation of Israel as the Messiah. And you notice the kind of the ethical exhortations here in this passage that set the stage for Jesus' own ministry. A certain type of heart is needed to respond to the gospel. And that is why John calls for repentance. I find it interesting that Luke begins by placing Jesus in the context of world history. If you look at those first couple of verses. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, Trachonitis, and Licinia, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Notice that long list of important people. But it's also placed in the context of biblical promise. If you look at Isaiah's words, Isaiah chapter 40 in verses 4 to 6, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. According to Isaiah, God will deliver his people and give them the comfort of salvation. And John's ministry here means that God is at work again to save his people. John the Baptist is really kind of the theological beginning of the New Testament. Not the chronological beginning, but the theological beginning. And he's really the last of the Old Testament. He's maybe climaxing all of the Old Testament prophets together in one. And that prophetic tradition now says, prepare the way for Jesus. Prepare the way for Jesus. Isaiah 40 is coming true. The exile is ending and Jesus is about to step onto the stage. The interesting thing here, though, is that the 400 years of silence and physical suffering in Egypt were ended by the exodus to the promised land. But Jesus is now ending spiritual bondage with a greater new exodus. And that comes in such unexpected ways. Unexpected people. Uh, again, John, uh, Luke starts with this reference to all of these powerful, significant people. I just read the list for you. The word of God does not come to the powerful, important people. It comes to the insignificant and marginalized says the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. Yes, Luke is setting a historical framework in the context of historical facts. This is not a story. There is history here. This is actually something that happened. It's not just a children's rhyme. But each of these historical figures also represents a particular aspect of the wretchedness of Israel's political experience. None of them are actually represented very favorably. And this speaks to the hopelessness of waiting on human solutions. And I have to admit in these days that I am wont occasionally to be discouraged with, uh, I'm going to make it broad, Western world leaders. I won't single out our prime minister in case he comes knocking on my door. But, but human solutions... We're looking for things in human solutions. And just like there, 
those solutions just aren't there. And as believers, we're going to have to get ourselves past that and realize that there's this wretchedness about human solutions. And you and I have a great God who is actually in charge. Maybe Luke puts these people into the story as a point of comedy. These are very important people, and yet none of them matter. John the Baptist, that radical prophet in the wilderness, he's the one that is really important. And this is historically the case that God uses the insignificant to highlight his power. And although it's not the point of my sermon this morning, I think that you and I can conclude that none of us can say, no, Lord, I'm not capable or make excuses. Like Moses or Jonah or anybody else, we can't make excuses because God is the expert at using the insignificant to do wonderful things. God also appears in unexpected places. The wilderness, the desert. Instead of the halls of power, John is found in the desert, in the wilderness. And again, notice that Abraham was found in the wilderness. Jacob wrestled with God in the wilderness. Moses was called in the wilderness. The wilderness was a place of judgment, renewal, and recommissioning. The wilderness is a place of nothingness, of vulnerability. And God reaches out to Israel in their weakness, in the wilderness at Sinai. John appears in the wilderness to announce a new exodus, this one led by the Messiah himself. And Jesus begins his ministry being led into the desert. Yes, wilderness can be a place of incredible suffering, but also a place of learning and transformation. And maybe you feel like you are in a wilderness. Maybe you feel that we've been in a bit of a wilderness the last two years. Hmm. Tie that wilderness to, to silence, to waiting. That's what Advent is. Oh, but I like going through the drive through and I don't want three cars in front of me because I don't want to wait. I want a fast food spirituality. I'm sorry. Maybe we need to learn to wait. Maybe we need to learn to endure wilderness. Maybe we need to experience silence for a bit. Maybe your vulnerability and desert experience is where God needs you to be so that you are ready and open to what he wants to do in and through you. Let me say that again. Maybe your vulnerability and desert experience is where God needs you to be so that you are ready and open to what he wants to do in you and through you. I keep asking myself, what are the lessons God wants to teach us in this pandemic? I, I do not want to go through an experience and not learn from it. So what are those lessons? And, and, and maybe we need to sit in silence and, and we need to embrace the desert a bit and ask God to tell us what he's trying to teach us. Because if it's business as usual, we're not open to something new. 
I've often told students, I know what I believe, but I hold it in an open hand, because if I hold it in a clenched fist, not even God can teach me anything. Hmm? Open hand. Well, not only unexpected people in unexpected places, but an unexpected message. Verses 8 to 9 is a call to repent. How does John prepare people for Jesus? Well, by proclaiming, demanding deeds worthy of repentance. Now, notice that uncomfortable word, deeds worthy of repentance. Are we a guilty of repenting once for salvation and then never feeling the need to repent again? Never feeling the need for spiritual renewal? A need for a reawakening or a fresh encounter with Christ? One of my favorite sayings that I usually pull out when someone compliments me on my Spanish is, el que anda por la miel algo se le pega, which means that if you walk amongst honey, something sticks to you. Have we forgotten as believers that we walk in a world where stuff sticks to us and that probably shedding that and repenting occasionally is an important part of continuing to walk the journey of faith? It, it would be naive to suggest that you and I could repent once, accept Christ, and then go on our merry way without ever recalibrating or shedding what the world keeps sticking to us. Spiritual renewal has to do with practical, gritty, costly things. It has to do with obedience and submission and aligning ourselves with Christ. And John here gives us a picture of the sort of person that is actually ready for Jesus. If you want to be ready for Jesus, you need to start living this way. And you'll fall right into step with him when he comes. So biblical repentance is actually more than being sorry. It's more than saying, I'm sorry. Repentance is turning. Repentance is change. It has to do with getting in step turning around, i.e. deeds worthy of repentance. And it's interesting in our passage here, Jews are being treated like Gentiles. Well, that's fun. See, baptism was for Gentiles, not Jews. But here, Jews are called to a baptism of repentance because they have wandered from God. This is a call to those of us on the inside to recommit, to reconvert, to prepare for God's salvation, our heart has to be open to his message. We need to prepare for Jesus. And there's always going to be two responses. Jesus splits the crowd with people on either side, kind of like we've split our sanctuary this morning. You will either worship him or revolt against him. Jesus will goad you into making a decision. Well, John's message, verse 18, after discussion of the axe being placed at the tree and, and just this whole sense of judgment, he says in verse 18, and with many other words, just after this chaff with unquenchable fire, and with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. <laughs> Luke ju juxtaposes good news and judgment. 
a combination that we kind of don't see very often today. The text is honest about God's judgment and vindication of justice that it represents. But judgment can be good news. Where there is judgment, there is also the offer of mercy. Relying on ancestry and heritage will not commend us before God. Salvation is not by family inheritance, but by faith, by turning and trust to the living God. So the opportunity salvation becomes a tragedy judgment if we don't respond in repentance. So that leads to the response that the text repeats three times. What should we do then? This question is asked by the crowds, it's asked by the tax collectors, it's asked by the soldiers, and it should be asked by us this morning as well. What should we do then? And maybe the text sets the stage for the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 to 7 of Matthew. John certainly has come to adjust people's expectations of the Messiah, and even John got it kind of confused later on in prison and was wondering whether Jesus was actually the Messiah. But the crowds are being prompted to anticipate what is coming, what is happening. You need to wake up and prepare for what is coming. How do you prepare? John's message is fairly simple. Share with the needy, love your neighbor. Don't cheat others. Don't extort, be content, don't falsely accuse. All fairly practical ways of living out concern for your fellow man. And I think awareness of our accountability before God should make us more sensitive to how we treat others because others are also people that God loves and are image bearers. For John, the ethical dimension of life is fed by our sensitivity to our horizontal relationship with God. We have this relationship that affects this relationship. They go together. John is asked if they understand what his baptism is really, he's asking if they really understand what his baptism is all about and what is at stake. People are to produce fruit worthy of repentance. If we turn to God, our lives should look different. It includes preparing to serve others. Well, who is Jesus? This question is asked. The crowds think maybe John the Baptist is the Messiah. And John makes it clear that his baptism is water only. That's all it is. And someone more powerful than him is coming, who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Oh, that we would long a baptism of Holy Spirit and fire this morning. It represents presence and purging. The presence is great, the purging Hmm. Are we ready for that? But as the chapter concludes, a response is required. The chapter, or this section, concludes fairly discouraging in a way, because it concludes with a negative response. John rebukes Herod because of Herodias. He had taken his brother's wife for himself. And he locks John into prison. 
It's apparent that no one, not even in the upper echelons of society, can escape John's penetrating call to repentance. A call to repentance demands a response, and some will respond negatively. Forgiveness can't occur except when we realize our responsibility for sin and repent of it. So the question for us this morning is, what is Jesus saying to you today? What is he saying to us as a church family? What does it mean for us to get ready for Jesus' second coming? Could John's message be important for our preparation for that? Yes, today our context, pandemic, seems to feel like wilderness. It's uncomfortable. We long to go back to the way it was. But what are we being called to? Do we need a radical call to generosity, even if it hurts? Is this part of repentance? Today is the first Sunday of Advent. And Advent is a season of preparation. That's what Advent means. It's a season of preparation. It's a season of waiting. I think, and some of you aren't going to like this, I think we sometimes celebrate Christmas too early. Breaking the silence, the wilderness tension, the wrestling with the anticipation. How do we create that expectation, that space of silence? Do we need to learn to sit in our silence, our expectation, our wilderness, to truly see and hear Jesus? I want to invite you this morning to find moments, especially today and during the week, to sit in silence, to ask Jesus what he wants to teach us. And, and whether there are things that we need to do to prepare for his second coming, whether we need to repent as well. And we need to ask him whether he cannot fill us anew with a fresh sense of his presence by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray and then I'll ask Mo to come up and we'll see if there are some comments or questions. Heavenly Father, this morning we celebrate the first Sunday of Advent. We want our focus to be Jesus, but we want our focus to be anticipation and silence and waiting so that you speak into our hearts and lives. We want to draw closer to you. We want to hear you above the noise that so often accompanies this season. We want to come and we want to see. Lord, we ask you for a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit on each and every one of us as we submit ourselves to you in obedience. May you have your way, Lord. As head of the church, you have redeemed us, you have chosen us, and so we ask you, come, Lord Jesus, come. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
got one one text message, and it just said, um, it just said, uh, well, actually, <laughs> I'll be honest, it was my text message. Um, sometimes okay, I don't do that bother so reading then. Sometimes I do that so that I remember what I'm gonna okay what to do. Uh, there's a there's a song by Hillsong Worship that's called Resurrender. Mm. And it says, the, the bridge of it goes like this. It says, if you're calling, we're coming. We're not walking, we're running. God, we need resurrender, so we resurrender. If you're calling, we're coming. We're not walking, we're running. And um, I guess I, I was wrestling with that idea this week as I was listening to that song is, is resurrender, is that a thing? Is that actually a, and how do we balance that, that idea of, of continual repentance while also maintaining a confidence in our salvation? How do we balance that? Maybe that's a question I have for you. I would not want to go back to the feelings or thoughts that when I go to sleep as a, as a young kid, that what if I sinned and, and so I need to repent in case I don't make it through the night? That kind of insecurity, that's not what I'm talking about at all. Uh, one thing is a commitment to Christ and giving my life over to Christ. Another thing is, is keeping that relationship vibrant and fresh and, and pouring into it. And one of the things that I, and this is something I, I struggle with, I have to work with. So often, it's easy for the, your devotional life to be you reading and doing and very little listening. My prayer life, praying for this, that, and the other thing, very little listening. And what I'm trying to do is stop myself. And one of the things that I do on the uh, Version Bible app, there's a prayer link further down, and usually it starts by saying, sit quietly and, and wait for God. And, and so I usually every day do that where I'm trying to create a space of silence and, and anticipation. Because we're, we're all about the do, 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 do. Uh, so when I talk about repentance and renewal, I'm not talking about... Um, a question of where my allegiance lies. I'm talking about keeping a vibrant life with Christ. Yeah, I think I think one of the reasons I asked the question is that I think I think for some of us, and maybe it depends kind of what your tradition has been growing up. I, at, at some point, I remember, especially my parents talking about the the idea that um, it almost came across pious to say that I know that I'm saved, right? Like it it, it wasn't. Um, like there was this this idea that that I couldn't really say, well, no, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven because because that sort of makes me, you know, that makes me come That's across arrogance. As, yeah, yeah, arrogance. Yeah. yeah. Um, but and there's something really significant to know that that I have that when I when I confess when I invite Christ into my life that I'm saved. And the the interesting thing about this idea of of resurrender or repentance or, or is that we, it becomes something that is part of our daily 
walk with Christ is it becomes something that is that is continuous. It's not just something that's that we do once. And I, I really appreciated that. To to say that I am saved is not arrogance. It is taking God at His word. Now, can you imagine if you promise me something, and I don't trust you to fulfill what you've done? I'm I'm suspecting. I'm I'm. I'm questioning your character, your integrity, etc. But when you say that you will do something and I leave it because I know that you will follow through with what you've said, uh, I'm not being arrogant. I'm just, I'm just affirming what I know of the person. So when we quote God's promises back to him or when we state them, we're only affirming God's word and his character. So it's not arrogance. And the the. Th- the thing that I like about this, and there was a question here about, about the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of, of, of the coming of the Holy Spirit upon us. And um, I, I like the idea that repentance is what brings us back and centers us so that the fruit of the Spirit that we read about in Galatians is actually a part of what, what it is that we are, like that, that's who we are. The, the Spirit actually gives us the strength, but, but I, I believe that the key to the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life is the, is the work of daily repentance. Mm-hmm. Look at what Paul said in Romans um, when he talked about the challenges of the flesh. And uh, we would all say that Paul was quite a, a spiritual statesman, a church planter, and, and yet he, he talks about this struggle. So when I say... He who walks amongst honey, something sticks to him. Uh, actually, it, it, I'd never thought of this before, but it is an admission that some of the stuff of the world is actually fairly sweet. It's attractive. It, it pulls. It, it, it wouldn't have any impact if it wasn't desirable. Uh, so it's, it's about re- keeping my focus. And I think that just like when I'm driving to a particular destination, sometimes I need to look at my map a couple of times to make sure I'm still on the right road. I think spiritually it's the same thing. You, you need to stay focused. Sometimes we can think of this, this um, repentance. Um, I think it's really easy for us to, to think of that word repentance, and as we think of it, we think of a God that is waiting for us, you know, just to, yeah, like, come on, repent already, you know, like, like that he's kind of out to get us. And I think for me uh, to understand this idea that that actually repentance is about God and inviting relationship with us, like it's it's an invitation more than it is a, a God trying to put His finger on us, you know, and and smite yeah. us or whatever we want to say there. Yeah. My final comment is: this is the first Sunday of Advent. Let's try to find ways to practice silence and waiting anticipation. I know that's hard for, I know it is for me. Uh, let, if we want to talk about come and see and renewal and having God do something special in our lives, I think it starts there. It starts with us being silent and open and waiting and anticipating what God will do. Uh, so that's where we start. Thank you. Thank you.